0: The absolute timelessness of the Ancient of Days means that God does things (laughs) in a certain time that are clearly applied to other times. And sometimes it's hard for us to see that. You think, what's he talking about? I hope that in a few moments you know exactly what I'm talking about. Our God is the Ancient of Days. Please take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. And we'll read the entirety of Exodus 17. This is the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. According to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children, our livestock, with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. The water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah, Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Raphadim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand So joshua did as moses told him and fought with amalek While moses aaron and her Went up to the top of the hill Whenever moses held up his hand Israel prevailed whenever he lowered his hand amalek prevailed But moses hands grew weary that I will utterly blot out the memorial or the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. We pray that he adds blessing to it. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to children's church if you're heading that way. As they go, I, I want to say an opening word about worldview. I spoke with Pastor Josh this week. He's thinking through his next course seminar. and We were talking about worldview, and it reminded me of something I heard that was very helpful years ago, and that is this, and I think it's relevant to what we're about to study you could summarize a popular current worldview this way. It is the perception that we are all experiencing an external problem with an internal solution. So it is to think, because of the way I was raised or because of the way our culture is so broken, I have this external problem. But through the positive existence or presence of good thinking or good habits or religion, the problem can be solved. So the perception that we have this external problem with an internal solution, which is actually antithetical to the gospel. The gospel says to us, friends, that we have an internal problem with an external solution. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ. I wonder how often we have maybe a Christian version of that worldview. A text like Exodus 17 helps us guard against that unbiblical worldview. Israel has a problem. It's an internal one. And the solution is external. We need to see the importance of Israel's failures because we need to see the importance of Christ's Faithfulness. The title I've given to this sermon is Faithfulness in the Wilderness. Faithfulness in the Wilderness. The story is that the strong hand of God has delivered His people from Egyptian slavery. And that same strong hand is working to deliver His people from internal captivity of their own will. From their own faithlessness, God is still redeeming this people. And in that redemption, he has providentially brought them into four scenes. Post-Red Sea Crossing, there are four scenes. The first scene was, there's no water here. And God gives them sweet water where there had been bitter, and then sends them to a place where there's water. The second scene is, there's no food here. And God gives them bread from heaven. Manna, what is it? Bread from heaven. And it points us ultimately to Christ. The third scene, which we see in the beginning of 17, is there's no water here either. And we see God provide. And then the last scene is the one where there is this this nomadic people who they come into conflict with, the Amalekites. And God provides for them again. Now here's the thing. We have this delivered people coming out of the Red Sea. They should have every reason to jump up and down and worship endlessly from here till heaven. But they don't. They start immediately complaining. And the question for us as we walk through texts like these is how can this be the unfolding of God's plan of redemption? How can this be leading us toward some sort of confidence that anyone is ever going to reach glory. Because when we read stories like this, it is a vivid reminder of our fallenness. And so, we ask the question when will we see some faithfulness in the wilderness? Because it's just account after account of failing. So, Today's chapter is going to take us through three main points. This is the way I would give them to you. There is faithlessness in the wilderness. That faithfulness is clearly seen in more grumbling. Could you just say more grumbling? We're going to see faithlessness in more grumbling. We are also going to see, again, faithfulness of God. I am so thankful that God does not react According to our acting. We act faithlessly. God acts faithfully. And then we're going to see lastly, and it's going to be brief, this first military conflict between Israel and Amalek. And we're going to call that fighting in the wilderness. Faithless, faithful, and fighting. So if it helps you, you're going to hear them come out alliterated with, f faithless grumbling faithful grace and providence fighting in the wilderness let's look at verses one and two the bible tells us that they moved from where they had been according to the command of the lord we understand that the people are being directed from place to place by god's hand that begs the question why did god lead them yet to another place there was no water they're in the desert. And the hand of God is strategically leading them to the next place where there's not something they know they need right away. Therefore, not having water, the people quarreled with Moses. He, of course, intervenes and reminds the people that their complaining is not against him. He says, who are we? Like in chapter 16, who are we? We are the messengers. Do you not see the pillar You think I was the one that brought you to this place where there's no water? Well, I would suggest, of course they didn't think that. It just somehow felt more sanctified to complain about Moses and Aaron, not Aaron in this case, Moses. I wonder, I wonder how often it feels more appropriate to complain about who the president is. Because in fact, we're complaining about a God who doesn't seem to be doing the right thing, but it feels a lot more sanctified to complain about who the president is than to complain about the God who put him there. So Moses says, why do you put the Lord to the test? Moses identifies their quarreling as their attempt to test God. Here's what it looks like. It is appropriate that we call these people the children of Israel because they act childish they have already learned there's no water oh water there's no food food they get to the next spot all right what do we do to get him to do what we say we complain isn't that one of the things that you as parents sometimes struggle with just happened this morning on my way out of the house the littlest one in our home had woke up first and didn't want to stay in bed so came out to the living room and wanted to play his little video game. I was getting my shoes on. I see him sitting a little after seven o'clock already playing his video game. And my thought was, we have to break him of this. And as soon as I had that thought, I thought, I'm on my way out the door, breaking the will of the child would be all on my wife. She can figure that out. It's not fair, it's not fair for me to say, all right, now's the time to draw some lines in the sand. And make the four-year-old throw fit. Have a good morning, honey. I'll be in my quiet office. But you know that you've had those moments where you think, if we allow this to happen, if every time they complain they get, then we're conditioning that child to complain to get. And that's what Moses means. Why are you testing the Lord? You're saying because he had been benevolent and because he had been kind once before, now your mode of fellowship with your God is going to be complain and get, complain and get? So he says, why do you test the Lord? And they grumbled. The grumbling is similar to chapter 16. Look at verse 4. The judging from Moses' words seems to be that the grumbling has increased to the point where Moses feels like his life is in danger. Grumbling can get there. Grumbling can grow into something that is very threatening to well-being. Here's what I want you to understand about these first five verses. Take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because the Apostle Paul actually talks about this account in great illumination. We understand more about it. Here's what I mean. Remember when I opened and I said, the Ancient of Days does things in a moment that are actually things about other moments? That's what's happening in Exodus 17. We know that from New Testament references like First Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I invite you to look with me at 9 through 13. Moses had asked, why do you put God to the test? And here Paul says, we must not put Christ to the test, in verse 9, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, God will provide for you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now from Paul we learn a couple of things about Exodus 17. We learn that the Exodus account, these challenges they go through in the wilderness, are are happening as an example to us. They're written down for our instruction. There is something about the testing, the complaining, the grumbling, that is meant to be instruction for us. I want you to note one other thing. Because as we talk about grumbling, let's say that we won't give each other any guidance for grumbling that doesn't include Jesus. Let's say it that way. We won't give each other any guidance about grumbling that doesn't include Jesus. Okay? Because the text in 1 Corinthians 10 actually is full of christ it's full of christ look at another section with me look at 14 through 16. he says therefore so we're in first Corinthians 10 14. therefore my beloved flee from idolatry i speak as to sensible people judge for yourself what i'm saying and then here we go the cup of blessing that we bless is it not participation in the blood of christ the bread that we break is it not participation in the body of christ so he goes from the grumbling lesson that we have to learn to guidance about who Christ is. So let's say we won't give each other any instruction about our grumbling that doesn't include Jesus. So grumbling. I've been provoked the last couple of chapters about just how quickly I can fall into grumbling. And, like Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. So I honestly say, I see not only am I susceptible to grumbling, but so are the people that I'm with. We are prone to grumble. And so I thought about What are some examples I could give about things we grumble about? Last week, I told the elders this week at our elder meeting, I almost said one, and I'm thankful I didn't. I almost gave an example of something I grumbled about, and I imagine most of you probably grumbled about it too when you heard it. There are a lot of things to grumble about. I thought, I want to pick the big ones. I'm going to pick the big five that will apply to most people, and we're going to talk about stop grumbling about those five things. And that would be a neat object lesson, but I don't think that would really help. We would say, oh, I've got hundreds to choose from. I just won't pick those. So rather than name specific examples of what we should stop grumbling about, I want to fortify your perspective. In other words, the way you see the world. And I want you to understand that it's not an external problem with an internal solution. It's not an external problem with some earthly external solution. To help you with it, I want to read from Samuel Say, who's an author, who I read recently. I've been very uh, curious, all I can say is curious, it's the only word I'm willing to use on this topic. Not critical, not not assessing, not judging. I've just been curious about the campus revival that we're seeing in Kentucky at Asbury University. I've been curious. I don't know anything about Asbury. But maybe some of you are aware of it. And I'm prayerful that it's sincere and honors God and produces fruit for generations. I'm prayerful, but I'm curious. And in considering it, I came across this article by... Samuel say and this is what I want to give you in regard to our grumbling in desperation for any semblance of hope for the culture some Christians will abandon discernment and become eager to idolize anything that professes Christ our hope however is not In a change in our culture. That's the sentence right there. That's that's the middle sentence that we have to take. Our hope is not in any change in our culture. I continue. Our hope isn't in revival, our hope isn't in more Christian culture. Pause. Our spoken theology nods as I read that. Our lived theology is offended by that statement. Our spoken theology says, of course, I don't want more Christian culture. Our spoken theology says that. Our lived theology says, when are we just going to get more Christian behavior? When are people just going to start pretending like they're Christian?" I'll take all the pretenders I can get, we would say. We would be angry at that statement, functionally. Spoken theology, we say yes. I don't want pretend Christianity. Resuming quote. All those things are good. Christian culture, revival, morality. All those things are good. But our hope isn't in the return of Christian culture. Our hope is in the return of Christ. And we pander for Christian culture. And we're not quite sure how we feel about the return of Christ. That seems scary. That seems intrusive. Seems totally offensive. Offensive. Just give me more Christian nice. Won't somebody agree with me that gender matters? Won't somebody agree with me that fiscal conservative is the way to go in capitalism? Just give me that. What about Christ's return? Take it or leave it. You know I'm getting passionate when I'm sarcastic. So I'm going to move forward. And I would punctuate this there's no water here. We're going to pretend like we're grumbling at Moses. But we're not we're not so foolish that we don't see the pillar. Friends, we're sitting in this room. We know the pillar and we pretend to grumble against Moses. Because what we want, we think Moses can give us more nice culture. Too long for lesser things is to be faithless in the wilderness. Too long for lesser things is to be faithless in the wilderness. And here they are, they're faithless and it's not hard to see, but we move. God is faithful. A faithful God. Look at verse five. God is faithful to his mercies just as he has been. And verse five says, the Lord said to Moses, literally it says this, get out in front of the people, take some elders, put the rod in your hand, and the same rod you struck the Nile with, and start walking in front of the people. So, I think here's here's a little bit of what God says to Moses. God says to Moses, You came to me saying, I'm afraid that if things don't happen in the right time, I might get stoned. Who does that sound like? That sounds just like the people. I'm afraid that if things don't happen right away, we're gonna die of thirst. It sounds just like the people. Moses is echoing the complaining or at least the anxiety of the people and god says moses stop your place in this is different get in front of and lead and take other people with you that's going to be the nature of chapter 18 by the way look at verse 6 god promises moses that he will be present listen to listen to verse 6 listen I will stand there before you on the rock of Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. I will be there on the rock. Moses does as he's told. He takes the elders. They go up. They witness it. Now, one of the things about Exodus is it's hard not to make the whole thing one giant analogy for our salvation. There's moments where it's super tempting to find this really profound underlying truth and make it some secondary lesson about us. Um, Ultimately, the story of Exodus is a revelation of God. Now, that certainly applies to God's working with his people, but I want to take a moment right here and expound... I want to take a spotlight and put it on something I think is profound. And then I'm going to give you defense for why I think the Bible is leading us to eventually see the profound. Let's take a minute to stress this profound. He says, Moses, put your hand on the staff. Don't forget Moses' hand, right? Clean, unclean, clean, God makes it clean what had been unclean. And then take the staff. You remember Moses' first interaction with the staff? Serpent to wood. Wood to serpent. The same staff that had been used to turn the water of the Nile into blood. In fact, the text says that staff. Don't forget. The same staff that was used to part the water of the Red Sea to lead the people through dry land to the way of salvation. Take that staff and strike the rock. I will be there on the rock when you strike it. And the people will have what they need. They will drink from it. I wonder, as I get to that point, how many of you are going, wait, there's something profound there. Take your staff and hit the rock, which I will be there. And the people are going to get from it striking what they really need. They will drink of it. And just in case you're thinking, wow, that is profound if I'm following you. But I think you might have made that up. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians 10. The Exodus account is meant to be profound for those who are able to understand it. 1 Corinthians 10.3 All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock. The rock was Christ. Now that is profound, but I didn't make that up. I read that. The rock was Christ. Moses seems to understand this by the way he names the place. He says, in this place they complained there was a test. He names this place complaining testing. Remember, the people did test God. Is he even with us? Is God with us, that was the test. And how does God pass the test? Listen, friend, God says, I am with you more than you know. I am the rock. When you strike it, you will receive what you need. And they thought, oh, good, water. We know so much more. I think Moses gets it. Now Moses doesn't really, really get it. But there's a day which we read from this morning. The Mount of Transfiguration. The law, Moses, and the prophets appear with Christ and Peter, James, and John. Moses is there hands over his face going i didn't know i heard and and i thought and now here it is the one whom all of the law whom all of the exodus whom all of the prophets pointed to the rock the one we survived by in the wilderness His presence was obvious in the pillar. But the Lord, in a profound way, was with them in a way they didn't see yet. Now, you might ask, is the Lord with us? You might test. Does God even care? Is God even here? And I think about the text in Romans chapter 2. I think it's verse 4. Every kindness that God has given to us which there are many innumerable kindnesses to the saved and the unsaved, to the just and the unjust. His kindnesses, innumerable. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that those kindnesses are meant to lead us to his ultimate salvation. So, here's, here's friends, there in the wilderness, there's no water, And the kindness is that a staff striking a rock produces water. Kindness. Meant to lead them to salvation. And so I would say to you, the kindnesses, the kindness of God. You sit here this morning, breath in your lungs. You sit here this morning capable mentally to comprehend the profound revelation of Jesus Christ. You sit here this morning, loved ones on your right and left. You sit here in a place of shelter for us from the cold. All these kindnesses meant to point us to the kindness that is Jesus Christ. They're in the wilderness, and they think, we just need water. Here's water. Oh, good. That's over. And I would say to you, friends, if you're here, and you ask yourself, is God real? Is God with us? Every kindness of our meager existence is meant to point us to the greatest kindness, which is Jesus. And you say, okay, I think I'm tracking, sounds really profound, I'm not sure I'm getting all of it. I would love to have a conversation with you after church. I would love to have a conversation with you to talk more about how every good thing in God's creation is meant to point us to the great thing, which is Jesus. God is faithful in the wilderness, even though the people were faithless in their grumbling. Because all of their grumbling omitted the Messiah, the Christ, salvation. They were faithless. He is faithful. Lastly, fighting in the wilderness fighting in the wilderness. Let's go quick. Number three, 8 through 16. The Amalekites show up. They're descendants. They're descendants of Esau, a grandson of Esau. This goes back to the Esau-Jacob rivalry in Genesis. They're a nomadic group. They basically survive by traveling around and overcoming people and taking their stuff to live by. The Bible says in verse 9 that Moses commands Joshua... To take some soldiers. This is the first time Joshua appears in the Bible, first time in this narrative. Joshua seems to have been giving some sort of military training to some people. And he says, okay, it's time. The verse, look at verse 11. This reminds us, without doubt, that the Israelite war is God's war. There's no mistaking. Look at verse 11. Whenever moses held up his hand he's standing up on a hill He's not in the battle not like he's swinging a sword in his hand He's up on a hill removed from the battle and as long as he has his hands up above his head Then they win and when his hands get tired then they lose Okay, so now to illustrate this point this this isn't to say something weird about moses It's just the fact that our hands get tired as we hold them up So for the remainder of the sermon we can all illustrate that we'll just hold them up until service is over And then we'll see how long we last i'm kidding because we only have like three minutes left and you'd be fine. (laughs) As long as he held his hands up, the army of Joshua prevails. But when his hands would fall, the staff in his hand symbolizing, he's going to say this later, I've touched the throne of God, symbolizing the very existence of God over Moses. And as long as he held the staff above his head, they prevail. But he gets tired so they push a rock up underneath him. He sits in the rock. Uh, Aaron and Hur, also mentioned for the first time, probably Moses' brother-in-law, Aaron and Hur come alongside and hold his arms up. And as long as they do that, they prevail. In verse 13, by nighttime, the victory is total. Israel has won. And in verse 14, there's this record. Write this thing down. Make sure Joshua hears. The Lord guards Joshua from pride. Like, wow, I must have really prepared them well in those couple hours we had before the fight. We're we're a pretty big deal militarily. Well, no. Make sure Joshua knows why we won. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. Moses builds an altar. Altars are meant for worshiping God. Worship always involves the expression of gratitude and blessing. Verse 16 Moses identifies the staff as a symbol. Literally, he says, my hand was touching Yahweh's throne. Now, if you've got a handout today, there's a little section, which I really don't have time to say much about, so I'm going to say it really quickly. When it comes to holy war, the war that God fights for his people, there are 12 elements that are listed in Deuteronomy. There are 12 I don't have time to go through 12. Let me give you a couple of them. When it comes to fighting in the wilderness against the Amalekites, there were some of the elements of holy war. They were all there, but here are some of them. The battle of a holy war had to be fought by volunteers. You couldn't pay anyone who was involved in fighting a holy war battle. It had to be volunteers because they weren't fighting for personal gain. They were only able to fight for justice. Holy war was a a war meant to protect the promises of God. Yahweh was the one who was going to be fighting in what was true holy war because the war was always his. Holy war included things like fasting and other self-denial. The goal of holy war was the annihilation of what was evil. And when Moses saw this holy war, he could say, my hand was touching the throne of God. Now, I want to finish our time this morning by expounding on the truest holy war fight in the wilderness. I want you to look at Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 4. You are probably familiar with the narrative, the story. After 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus is hungry. It's then that Satan shows up to tempt Jesus. And when being tempted, Jesus quotes from the Pentateuch. One particular quote is that Jesus concluded he would live by the word of the Father, not by bread. That is the Deuteronomy quote that relates back to Exodus 16. Look at verses 5 through 7. In Matthew 4, verse 5, Satan says, why don't you throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and let God catch you? Because doesn't the Bible say that he's commanded his angels so that you won't strike your foot against a stone? Satan says to Jesus, why don't you just confirm that God is with you? I mean, you know the promise. And if he's here... He'll do what he says. And Jesus said, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't demand of God. If you do this, then I'll do this. That's what it means to put the Lord to the test. If you get me through this, then I'll do this. When the Bible says... And yet even if he slay me, I will worship him. We are reminded in Matthew 4, fighting in the wilderness, that the true rock through which the promise has been provided is Christ. You see, the story is not that Israel somehow was going to become the way of salvation. The story is that Israel needed salvation. Israel needed a savior. Israel still needs a savior. There, I, I, I had in my notes. I had this whole thing about Israel. Is there any good then be in being Israel? Yeah, there's good. But is it, sa- is it saving good? No, it's not saving good. Paul says I would be a curse for them. Jesus says they're near me in some of their confession, but they're far from me in heart. Israel is not the way of salvation. Israel needs salvation. The same way Adam wasn't going to be the way of salvation. Adam was going to fail. Adam needs salvation. Israel needs a Savior. King David needs a Savior. John the Baptist needs a Savior. Mary needs a Savior. We need a Savior. Israel comes out of Egypt, and we will read account after account after account of them being a faithless son. Hosea, the prophet, explains to us that it won't stay that way. It's not always going to be a faithless son, but there will be a faithful son. A hope for a new Israel is finally fulfilled in the incarnation of God's true Son. He is the true Israel. Listen, listen to examples of what I mean. When Israel couldn't save, God's true Son is salvation. Matthew 2.13. The angel comes to Joseph and says, I want you to take Jesus into Egypt. And the angel says, This is to fulfill what was written by Hosea. Out of Egypt I will call my son. Jesus is the true son. Jesus is the faithful Israel who succeeds where old covenant Israel failed. Came up out of Egypt, passed through the water, tested in the wilderness and is faithful. Unlike ethnic Israel, Jesus passes the test. He's worthy to be called God's Son, not only because of His deity, but because of His sinless humanity. If you're looking for some sort of internal solution to an external problem, you won't find it. But if you come to texts like this one, and you're reminded that all we, like Israel, have gone astray, and you can see from the revelation of Scripture and the truth of the Spirit taught to us that Christ is the rock, then there is internal salvation from the external provision of Jesus Christ. There is a Savior apart from us. Who is Jesus Christ the Lord. We're going to close in singing after I pray. We're going to sing the hymn. All the way my Savior leads me. Let's pray. Father. These narrative lessons are true. And so relevant to us. We grumble. We try to sanctify our grumbling by directing it at something else. When we confess verbally that you reign, that written for our instruction is a really good gift, Father. The illustration, the the narrative is full of Christ. As we live in community together, as we sojourn together, we have been instructed and equipped to care for each other and guard against grumbling by giving instruction that is Christ. All of the momentary needs that you have kindly satisfied are meant to point us to what the nature of the rock really is. When we wonder if we'll ever be faithful in our wilderness temptation if we'll ever see an example of Israel being faithful in wilderness temptation, we have this great whole story that tells us that your son was faithful in the wilderness. And that in the good news, we participate in his faithfulness. As we sing to You, God, a confession. Let our hearts abound with joy that all the way our Savior has led us. We pray to You, Father, in His name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.